This is Dialogue Gospel Sunday Study. Hello, and welcome to Dialogue Sunday Gospel Study. Today is October 24th, 2021, and we are with Jonathan Stapley today. I'm Chris Kimball, conducting on behalf of the Dialogue Foundation Board. Other board members, Michael Austin and Rebecca Deschweinitz, are part of our group today. Michael Austin is in the background. We're using our webinar format on Zoom and running a live stream on Facebook, and we are recording this program. For viewers on Zoom, there's a chat function by which you can comment, ask questions, and propose answers, and we expect to have a chance to do that during the program today. We will follow comments on Facebook and introduce questions from Facebook as well when appropriate. Um, now my advertising. In the first issue of the journal, founder Eugene England wrote, my faith encourages my curiosity and awe. It thrusts me out into relationship with all creation and encourages me to enter into dialogue. To fulfill Gene's vision in the 21st century, we've made the current journal all 54 years of archived issues and all of our new digital offerings, including this gospel study series, our podcasts and other features entirely free for online users. This has meant moving away from a subscription model of funding. We have figured out a business model for digital dialogue. We've set a budget, made a plan, and we are asking for your help in creating a fund that secures the future of dialogue. We, you can find out more about sustaining dialogue at givetodialogue.com. We also have an email address dedicated to the campaign. That address is sustainingdialogue at dialoguejournal.com. No, I'll stop myself from going on and begin with our lesson today. Our lesson today, for our lesson today, I'm pleased to introduce Jonathan Stapley. Jonathan is a scientist and historian. Oxford University Press published his book, The Power of Godliness in 2018, which won the Mormon History Association's Best Book Award. His recent most publications cover topics such as women and priesthood, Graham Young's cosmology and Latter-day Saint sermon practice. As with every speaker and participant, we invited Jonathan today for his personal insights for his own voice. Jonathan does not speak for the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints and not for the Dialogue Foundation. Um, today we'll open with music, uh, Sacerdotes Domini by William Byrd. Um, the version we're going to hear today is by the Guildford Cathedral Choir. And uh, when we get there, I will share the text, at least the tr English translation. Um, uh, the music is in Latin. Our, our prayers today, I'll introduce our two prayers and, and then we'll proceed. Our prayers today will be offered by Tiani X. Coleman and David Sandberg. Tiani and David have the distinction of being longtime participants and commenters in these Dialogue Sunday School sessions and being personal friends of mine from other venues. Tiani X. Coleman resides in New Hampshire. She has five children, is an attorney and leader in the good government democratic electoral reform movement. And she loves deep dives into the scriptures. David, for our closing prayer, David introduces himself as a keenly curious student of the ongoing restoration of our potential as a human family. He and his wife, Cindy, live in Minnesota within 20 minutes of their three children and 3.3 grandchildren. I am envious of that 20 minutes. Um, as, as we begin the music, um, it will be in Latin. The English translation reads this, 
way. Then did priests make offering of incense and loaves of finest wheat to God. And therefore shall they be holy to their Lord and shall not defile his most holy name. Alleluia. Dear God, we come before thee this day with humility and gratitude. We thank thee for the tradition that we are a part of, that we are able to study and celebrate and learn from. We thank thee for the association that we have with one another. We ask thee to please be with those who are suffering today in our world. So many people struggling with so many things. We ask thee to help us to be more mindful of them to help them and please shed upon them thy love, thy peace, thy light, thy mercy, thy comfort. We ask you to please be with Brother Jonathan Stapley today as he shares his insights. Please help us that we will be able to learn from his much research and study and preparation. And we thank thee for all of this and Say these things in the name of thy son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Jonathan, you have the floor. All right. Um, let's just, uh, I'm going to do some slides. Um, first of all, I want to thank Christine Hagen for the music suggestion. Um, it was lovely and meaningful. And I'm grateful to be here talking with um, you folks. And as I, I mentioned to some of the folks in the beginning, typically when you do something like this, you get at most three like points that you get to make. Um, with the time that we have, I bet we get two, but um, we'll see how things go, right? Uh, today we're talking about a number of uh, revelations that span 1839 to 1842, um, almost the beginning of 1839 to the end of 1842, which is a lot considering um, early in the Doctrine and Covenants, we're studying like a couple months at a time. And um, this covers some of the most, as far as I'm concerned, poignant and important aspects of Joseph Smith's revelation. We have his prison letters um, that are elicited by um, his imprisonment um, and him learning that the saints are being um, evacuated as refugees from Missouri. Uh, we know the story. Many of us have been to Liberty Jail, which was actually in the stake that um, I went to. I grew up in. I was in high school in in the Kansas City area, and uh, know a lot of folks around there. Ultimately. Uh, Joseph Smith uh, escapes, um, not the jail, but um, during uh, kind of a leave from the jail. And then we have the kind of the Nauvoo period where we have baptism for the dead, um, revelations on ceiling or um, complex ceilings, if you will. The Relief Society, the Book of Abraham. Um, the temple, and ultimately Joseph Smith again uh, finds himself on the lamb 
and we get the baptism for the dead letters. So with that kind of broad con, um, timeline, we can talk about individual things. And as far as I'm concerned, um, section 121 is, that there's a few things that our tradition that I think we offer constructively to the world and Christianity in particular. Um, you know, we, we come in with uh, our conviction of Christ and his redemption. Um, and we will often say, well, we have the Book of Mormon, but specifically, like, what concepts do we offer that can be taken, um, much like the Sermon on the Mount, as the great contributions we have um, to the world beyond our immediate um, assertions of um, veracity and meaning through liturgy. And I would say that this uh, section 121 is one of those things. We'll talk about another one in a second. But like the Sermon on the Mount, I think it's also deeply challenging and something that we read and say is good, but also that we immediately ignore because it's simply too hard. Um, that it's this great observation that he learned from sad experience um, that power corrupts and that God's power cannot be maintained except by persuasion and long suffering and gentleness and meekness and true love um, by kindness and pure knowledge. There are moments where we must interact and reprove, um, but it can only be righteously done in a context of love. Um, and that our faith to each other, so faithfulness, fidelity, that uh, a relationship of trust and love mediates um, all within our congregation, within our cosmology. I would say that this, this is, especially today when um, people uh, more and more are seemingly willing to uh, justify their ends by any means is contradicted and um, controverted by the assertions in this letter. And if this is done, um, then our confidence, of course, wax strong in the presence of God and the doctrine of the priesthood, which we'll talk a little bit more, will distill upon our souls. So tremendously beautiful. Um, I grew up hearing this. This is my father's favorite um, set of scriptures uh, or uh, scripture within uh, our tradition. And it, it leads us to some interesting questions as we go to the next um, section. Um, these are taken as extracts or some extracted them from the, the prison letters in March. Um, 
we have this little bit that has been often uh, construed as theodicy, but I'm not sure that it is. So the question is, why do these? Why is all this happening? We have um, had our people killed and sexually uh, assaulted. We have had our property stolen and destroyed. We've had to flee in the frigid weather as refugees across the border. And why, right? Why we were just trying to do what God told us and God's response is, um, if it doesn't kill you, it makes you stronger. Is that what this is saying? Um, which seems deeply unsatisfying. Um, and consequently, I'm reticent to accept that as uh, the meaning of this section. Um, what I would assert and what I would propose is that uh, like the Book of Mormon's um, teachings on an empathetic atonement, um, this is suggesting that God can transform our sufferings into uh, glory. Um, and I'm again, I'm, I'm deeply uncomfortable with, so uh, Pope uh, John Paul II wrote um, a document called the Salvifici Dolores, which is salvific suffering, that suffering can be a way to save us. And I'm deeply uncomfortable by that, uh, although elements of it I find deeply resonant. And maybe it's a paradox that should exist, but the trauma, I, I don't think God created the trauma of Missouri, the hunger, the deprivation, the death. Um, God did not, was not the author of those experiences so that we could just be better. Um, the, the one way of framing this is to ask, well, if 121 is our great offering to the world, did God cause the trauma of Missouri so that we could have that? Um, and a similar question would be for, for Joseph F. Smith. Uh, um, did God slay Joseph F. Smith's children and family so that we could have section 124, his vision? And I don't believe so. Um, there is deep trauma. And in fact, I'd, uh, as a missionary, I think I was probably satisfied with the idea that um, what doesn't kill us makes us stronger, um, and probably because I was young and privileged and believed I was immortal. Um, the older I get, the more I realize that that which doesn't kill us generally traumatizes us and makes our life a mess. Um, but... Uh, if we suffer as Christ suffered, we can have the possibility that God transform our trauma into empathy 
and kindness and everything that he suggests is the uh, basis for an intermediate um, for power in the world. It's an inversion, much like Christ's inversion, uh, where the weak become the strong. Um, power can only be maintained by weakness um, as the outside um, world would evaluate it. It can only be mediated by kindness. Um, so that is a thing. Um, I guess I would throw it out there to uh, if any of the panelists or comments suggest that I'm wrong. Is, is uh, God the author of our suffering? And does suffering in turn save us? So Jonathan, I guess while we look for comments, um, the question of whether God is the author of the suffering is a, is a long one, of course, and has a long history. And like you, I don't believe it. Um, uh, on the other hand, I guess my missionary view, if I could use that term, was that the um, what doesn't kill us makes us stronger had the sense of um, being whole and perfect. And um, with, with age has come the sense that what, um, that what doesn't kill me makes me stronger in the form of scars. And that in what I end up as is uh, a whole bundle of scars that are not the same as smooth, all like when I was 18, but, uh, but something more. And of course, the scars will take you back to a Christ image, but that's, um, but I, 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 I'm not that profound, but I, but I, it has, it has come to mean that it was, uh, that it's the scars, that it's the healing that it becomes, um, becomes me, becomes us, becomes Joseph Smith. Well, my, my dad always often said that this was where Joseph Smith becomes a Christian, that this experience is, <laughs> in a sense, the start of his discipleship. And I think there's an intriguing message in here that Christ is saying the path of discipleship, I, I, I like how Jonathan's framing it, requires you learn empathy. You cannot become a disciple without empathy. And there's really no different, I don't think any other way to get it than through suffering. And, and so it's not that God somehow willy-nilly creates a situation of suffering. He said, this is a world where suffering will occur. And I think Matthew 20, 25, the you know, where Christ says, if you didn't know what it was like to be in prison, to be hungry, I mean, if you don't recognize those people and those experiences as real, then you don't have any part of me. And, and so I think there's this twofold, to me, kind of scary message that comes out, which is, am I willing to endure suffering that I can tell I'm called to do, but would rather not do? And am I willing to hear the suffering of others and give them an empathetic ear? So I think that to me is what is the, the, the is being teased out of when he says, is, 
are you are you greater than Christ? Well, no, but I'm trying to follow him. Oh, well, guess what he did. So you'll forgive me. Um, I my power cycled. We are having what is called apparently a bomb cyclone that was named by the same uh, cable news producers that named the murder hornet, and uh, we lost power for a little bit. So. Um, We've, we've said profound things, Jonathan. <laughs> Trust us, we've said good things. There are, and a hearty amen. <laughs> there, there, there are several wonderful comments here. Let me, um, or Rebecca, but I, I'll, yeah. I'll, go ahead, Rebecca. Yeah, just uh, uh, Jana's comment. I don't believe that God is the author of our suffering, but I do believe God is in the suffering. I tend to think of God as the reality of all the joy and all the suffering and, and, and everything in between. Um, and uh, another that talks about um, kind of the importance of, you know, free will, of course, in, in Mormon theology. Um, and then how does, I mean, I think, you know, reflecting on how does God come into that then and, and what is possible um, kind of through, through suffering, that the trauma is not the end. Um, anyway, I like thinking about that. I, I, let's see, I don't know if people want to be named. I guess they're in the chat, so you can see. Uh, Paul uses the phrase fellowship of the sufferers to describe the relationship we can get with Christ and each other as we share in the experience of suffering. Paul also talks about com comforting others with, with the comfort we have received from Christ. Um, and so that, yeah, I like the idea of empathetic, communal um, response to suffering and evil. It's... Um, yeah. So with, with that bit, um, and I apologize, it, there's a lot to talk about in this section, but we're going to fast forward a little bit through time and talk about a number of documents that um, relate to this doctrine of the priesthood that he mentions. Um, and we're going to, uh, in order to do that, go back in time a little bit. So priesthood, um, for those that have hung uh, around me even a little bit of time, knows that uh, priesthood is a complicated term in our tradition because we are constantly reforming our usage and the values we associate to, um, to it. Um, on the one hand, um, we have strong notions of uh, ecclesiastical priesthood authority. And um, on the other, we have this historic usage and association of priesthood with uh, temple cosmology. And um, I want to go back and propose in a new, or not a new reading, but a, a reading of Abraham that informs the basis of our, the rest of our discussion. Um, as we know, the book of Abraham was revealed to Joseph Smith in the mid-1830s. Um, at least the first section of it was, I know there's, controversy about it, but most 
um, scholars of the text uh, proposed that the balance of it was produced in 1832, which I agree with. But this, um, there have been efforts to push the Nauvoo cosmology back into Kirtland. And a lot of it, I think, is successful, um, particularly Sam Brown and um, Chris Wright's forthcoming dissertation is going to be transformative on this topic. But here we have the story of Abraham um, and the founding of Egypt. Uh, the Egyptians do not have right to the priesthood, right to the priesthood. Um, and that appears to be like the right of primogeniture, that it is an inherited right to have priesthood. Um, and Abraham's fathers, he says, um, join or associate with the Egyptian religious tradition. And therefore, Abraham does not have right to the priesthood, okay? Um, instead, he goes back to the, those who have this right, and through righteousness becomes a rightful heir. So he becomes an heir or he gains the right of priesthood through his righteousness. Because of his fathers, he did not have right to it and he gains that right um, through righteousness. Now let's come back to doctrine 122, 121 because um, the first section or the first portion of the section um, really is a response to Joseph's cry, like how, like this is messed up. What happened to us was messed up. Um, and there we have this kind of response. Now, those that discomfort my people in verse 23 and drive and murder and testify against them, saith the Lord of hosts, in verse 21, they shall not have right to the priesthood, nor their posterity after them from generation to generation. Now, we've, as a people, read um, Abraham through the lens of the um, Atlantic uh, tradition of enslavement, and particularly as a basis um, at least in the 20th century, for restricting priesthood and temple from um, Black folks. Um, it seems to me, now we know that Joseph Smith or um, during Joseph Smith time, Black people were ordained to priesthood offices. Um, we have, through the work of Paul Reeve and others, um, focused in on when that restriction was developed in the Utah era. But it seems to me that this chapter, and with the rereading of Abraham not being a rightful heir, um, is doing something really interesting um, and should inform our understanding of these restrictions in um, Joseph Smith's period. Now, I'm not going, um, it doesn't appear that uh, 
W.W. Phelps or the Missourians uh, had any lasting priesthood restriction um, institutionally. Um, so perhaps this is descriptive and not prescriptive. That is to say, perhaps this is describing what happens when you are a people that discomfort the Lord's covenant people. If you're a group of people that drives and murders and testifies against God's people, then you will naturally and consequently not have right to the priesthood. And because of how you are and have developed, the consequences of that will be um, a lack of priesthood connection um, for a generation after you. Um, this is reminiscent of Joe Spencer's work on violence in the Book of Mormon as well, um, that it is a consequence of acts, uh, the curses are a consequence of the, the violence. Um, so with that um, bit to, to show that Joseph Smith is thinking about um, priesthood in new ways, um, he's also has this little bit about, hey, we're going to find out that there's one God or many gods, dominions, principalities, and powers, which are orders of um, their structure within the cosmos, often referring to angels and things like that. So he's, he's thinking cosmologically. At the, by the end of 1839, he's already talked about how spirits are not created or made and that there's a divine council where God gathers the spirits together um, to offer them a way forward. So we're not at Nauvoo yet, but clearly there's Nauvoo-like things happening. Um, okay, we're going to skip ahead a couple years. So there's a lot of cool stuff happening. We don't have time to talk about it. But focusing on the Joseph Smith's revelations, we have um, DNC 124, which is uh, sometimes referred to this omnibus revelation about what's happening in Nauvoo. We have the temple. Um, we have... Uh, the Nauvoo House, we have ecclesiastical reforms. Um, but in relation to the temple, we have these few verses that, again, give us the idea that Joseph Smith is thinking about priesthood in new ways. And my sense is that most of the people that read section 121 and 124 at the time weren't necessarily catching the work that Joseph Smith was doing. And it's easier to see it in the scope of our timeline and our history, historicizing it essentially. Um, speaking of the house of the Lord in Nauvoo, for there is not a place on earth that he, the um, Lord, may come to and restore again that which was lost unto you or which he hath taken away, even the fullness of the priesthood. And in verse 34, for therein are the keys of the holy priesthood ordained that you may receive honor and glory. Um, verses 40 through 42. And verily I say unto you, let this house be built unto my name that I may reveal mine ordinances therein unto my people. Um, ordinances is uh, not a word that, um, so it, it, we borrowed from Baptists the tradition of using ordinances as a name for specific rites but it's really just, it just means laws. It's a legal doublet ordinances, laws and ordinances. So my laws therein unto my people, for I deign to reveal unto my church 
things which have been kept hid from the foundation of the world, things that pertain to the dispensation of the fullness of times. And I will show unto my servant Joseph all things pertaining to this house and the priesthood thereof and the place whereon it shall be built. So in this revelation, we're going to do interesting things. We're going to show you uh, the fullness of the priesthood, um, which I think has wrongly been used um, as a dog whistle for certain liturgical rites, but is nevertheless descriptive of the work of um, Joseph Smith's temple liturgy. So here we are. We have all this work leading up to 1842. And then in 1842, we have the sequence of events, the publication of the Book of Abraham. Um, I didn't include it because it, it's not you know priesthood, but we have the um, Joseph Smith uh, adopting masonry, Freemasonry. In March, the Relief Society is established, and it, April 28th is the best Joseph Smith sermon of all time, um, where he discusses priesthood and uh, gifts of the spirit and women healing. Uh, a couple days later, the endowment is revealed to a group of men for the first time. And then a couple of months later, we have the sealing ceremony revealed that Joseph Smith used um, and is published by the Joseph Smith papers. Um, so in that 18, April 28, 1842 sermon to the Relief Society, um, he tells them um, that the society should move according to the ancient priesthood. Hence, there should be a select society separate from all the evils of the world. Um, he said he's going to make of this society a kingdom of priests, as in Enoch's day, as in Paul's day. Um, and that is the privilege of members to live long. Um, he said he's going to give the keys of the kingdom to them that they uh, may have them as well as the elders. Um, two days after this, he gives a sermon. I can't remember if it's two days, April 20th, um, May 1st. He gives a sermon to the elders um, where he tells them that he's going to give them the keys of the kingdom. Um, we often associate keys of the kingdom with the right to govern. Um, that has been... Um, of a heuristic that we've adopted in, uh, in our tradition. I would argue that Joseph Smith is talking here, just as he's talking about in 1841, and maybe back into section 121. Joseph Smith, um, with the institution and revelation of the Nauvoo Temple Liturgy, reforms Latter-day Saint cosmology. He reveals that heaven is no longer a place where you get to go if you are lucky or elect. It is not something you earn. Um, it is not someplace you go. It's something that you construct on earth by welding people together into chains of a network that constitutes a heavenly priesthood. 
of the vision that um, the revelator saw of heaven with the throne of God and around it a concourse of heavenly beings dressed in the Israelite robes of the temple priesthood, Joseph Smith eventually asserts was a kingdom of men and women, um, priests and priestesses, um, kings and queens. And that the work of the temple was to construct that concourse. Um, we have his revelation of this ceiling um, right in a couple months later. Um, there are no ceiling documents that are uncomplicated um, and in some ways problematic because they deal with complex relationships. Um, if that's not a subtle way of um, invoking plural marriage. Um, but here we have Joseph Smith's revelation to the Whitney's. Um, and the Lord declares that they shall be crowned um, with honor and immortality and eternal life. And it shall be upon all of your house, both old and young, because of the lineage of my priesthood, saith the Lord. It shall be upon you and upon your children after you from generation to generation. So by constructing these relationships, by constructing, by becoming a priest and a priestess, by extending that kinship um, to our families. But more importantly, Joseph Smith's um, demonstration in Nauvoo was that it is not intended for nuclear families. This is to encompass the community. The only way that I can make sense of uh, Joseph Smith's revelation of polygamy in Nauvoo is to understand it in terms of a group of people trying to connect themselves to each other. Um, there are ways of connection that take time if you're willing to wait hundreds of years um, through relationships and children. But if you want an immediate connection, you have to defy proto-Victorian norms and in some cases, biology. Um, so with that, I guess uh, the take home message is um, Joseph Smith revealed that priesthood in Nauvoo would encompass heaven, that it would be constructed on the altars of the temple when those altars became available by linking men and women and children and parents and community member to community member to construct an endurable uh, network that could not be broken, to connect people in ways that can't be broken. Um, and with that, um, I will kind of open it to our, our panel here and uh, commenters. If they see um, is, I, I know when we have taught, when I was a missionary in the nineties, we taught uh, 
Ensemble La Jamais. I served in France and we had the Together Forever video. And it's like this beautiful couple with the kids. Um, but it seems to me that our priesthood cosmology encompasses that um, lovely couple, but is not exclusive to them. Um, what ways uh, do you um, become the priesthood of heaven today? Uh, Jonathan, I, I love the image of the, of, the, of the network of the welding people together and Tiani's commented on that as well. Before we get there, I want to, maybe this is an advertisement for these programs, but I want to link this comment with something that Nate Oman talked about, I think it was four weeks ago or five weeks ago in describing the um, Kirtland Temple as a second tranche, as, as Joseph Smith trying in Missouri to make heaven on earth, to make Zion out of a city and basically failing at that, being um, kicked out and moving to the temple, the temple practice, the temple ceiling as a, as a second way um, of, of creating heaven on earth, I guess. I'm putting words in his mouth, but that was um, that 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 links the two comments and conversations. Jonathan, I don't know if I uh, I haven't had time to reflect on the kind of main question you asked, but I'm I'm thinking about uh, kind of Joseph Smith being confronted with this kind of new vision, uh, introducing this new cosmology way of thinking about heaven, um, and it being about. Uh, you know, connection here on earth. And then, you know, how do you begin to imagine and create that in 19th century America? <laughs> and, uh, and so, you know, I'm thinking about uh, some of the other experimentation that's happening at the time with uh, various forms of complex marriage and also uh, adoption is, is kind of a new legal framework that is um, that people are, um, kind of developing. And so uh, I, anyway, it's just, it's shifting how I'm thinking about um, uh, how Joseph Smith comes to, and the early saints kind of come to try to practice this and put into place this new kind of heaven. Um, um, that, you know, how are you actually going to create these kinds of connections between people here on earth? And and I see it really drawing on these contemporary kind of frameworks for beginning to imagine that. Yeah, and you know, what's interesting about that, um, I think the church is moving to position. So we're, um, instead of reading the scriptures with my kids every night, we read saints this year because reading the Darkened Covenants with little kids is hard. Um, so we've done that. And I just listened to the recent, uh, Navu Temple podcast that the Joseph Smith papers did. And in both of those, they uh, kind of frame Joseph Smith's revelation as him getting a revelation and then struggling to find ways of implementing it and working through it. And, um, you know, as I, we talked to my kids, we just read two nights ago, the bit about uh, Joseph Smith being sealed to people behind Emma's, without Emma's knowledge. And my kids who are 10 and eight are like, what? 
Um, and we're like, yeah, don't do that. Um, I think that any rational approach to Nauvoo um, can appreciate that um, it didn't go particularly well. Um, while acknowledging at the same time, um, there is a vision of something bigger and potentially um, deeply beautiful and powerful. Yeah, uh, Jonathan, there's a question that I'll, I'll leap off of. Um, why would we want to rule and reign forever if we're all brothers and sisters and equal in the gospel? And I, I let me spin off of that to the, um, when you use the word network, and sometimes we talk about a, you know, a, a weaving or a connection of, of all people, um, there's a certain, maybe a certain kind of presentism in that interpretation or that yes. kind of language that in the 19th century, we get, um, we get a patriarchy, we get a, a, a kingdom kind of, a, you know, rule and reign kind of king, we get a dynastic um, structure or image. And um, particularly those... post Joseph Smith, yes. Particularly, yes, but but all of these are. I mean, I'm I'm going to suggest, but I ask your reaction that these are these are 19th century images overlaying a um, a vision of of connection. Yeah. So the idea of like a computer network, the internet as basis for Joseph Smith's cosmology is wildly presentist. <laughs> um, at the same time, I find some satisfaction in it, like conceded. Um, I think that, um, so I'll also confess that I don't adhere to strong conceptions of theogony that a lot of, um, Latter-day Saints do. So, um, I take Joseph Smith's teaching that, um, spirits are never created or made and that, jo um, Jesus, uh, came to earth as, or I'm sorry, that God the Father was once a, a man on an earth like Jesus was. Um, that was Joseph Smith's argument. So um, I know immediately after Joseph Smith's death, there was this push to view um, humans as um, on the God train. And I don't necessarily see that in Joseph Smith's cosmology. And consequently, it's easier for me to... Um, take a more relaxed view of my eternal progression. <laughs> um, I'm okay with, yeah. I, I, I'm looking forward to some time off when it comes. Well, I, I, I think it's, it's been fascinating to me to think about the unique situation of America at the time that Joseph Smith is growing up because it's a country for the first time without a hierarchy. There is no royalty. There are no established families. It's, it's one that's growing in a frontier kind of way. And so the majority of the population are, you know, independent farmers or craftsmen or merchants. And it's, and we see in America from 1850 on, and 
1830 on the formation of organizations to centralize power, to replace the monarchy that has been overthrown. And so I, I fully resonate with the, that comment about there's this tendency to kind of go back to the old models that we've, uh, that we've known. Um, so I think that it reminds me of my sister once talked about seeing her, her two and a half year old being just completely angry. And she said, I was filled with compassion because what he's saying is I see a possibility I can't execute yet. And I'm, I'm struggling to figure out a way to accomplish what I think is there. And I, I really like what you were framing with Joseph, that he's struggling to horizontal linkages that doesn't depend on a, on a, on a vertical kind of hierarchy. And, and in many ways, you know, I think the church organization the fact that someone might be my stake president and then be the one that's teaching my, my kids in nursery school or that I may then become their, we, 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 we try and find ways in which we can vacillate and alternate the idea that power is temporary unless it is bounded with a permanent sense of covenant and respect for others. Yeah, and so I I, um, I I generally warn people away from teleology, but if you have a teleological bent, um, we have moved away from kingdom theology as a people. Um, so we do not construct our relationships in, in terms, despite some lingering, um, lingering dynasties, um, we we generally don't construct a cosmology um, today within the church of, of royal lineages. I, I won't argue that point, although there's still language, still temple language that will bring you back to it. Well, um, I mean, and, and the, I mean, we're talking about the, the, if you go back to the Genesis, you know, the revelator's vision of the concourse of heaven kings and priests, right? Um, we're not getting a, we can't escape it, but the question is, what is that? What is a concourse of kings and queens and priests and priestesses that have existed forever and will exist forever? Um, I think that has the potential of egalitarian um, relationships. Because if everybody's a king and queen and everybody's yeah. a priest and a priestess, and, then the relationship is transformed. Yeah, and there's a comment in the chat too that talks about priests and priestesses or service service callings um, more than kind of setting up this hierarchy. And I and I think about um, too just um, you know not being able to kind of let go of some of those older notions, right? And how do you describe the kind of what's happening? Um, with these new types of conne connections and creating a heaven and, and Joseph Smith bringing in some of that kind of old language and frameworks and trying to transform it, actually. Well, in, in part, we have a, a history extending beyond plural marriage, where we are making sense of this in a world of nuclear families. And when you start putting layering on all of this 
teleology with nuclear families, you end up down to a couple. You end up down to a, 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 a pair. And um, but I let me let me come back to a comment of Brian Sebesta. It says I've heard uh, this is helpful. I've I've heard Joseph Bushman's line that Joseph didn't lust for wives so much as he lusted for kin. Um, and I'm that makes me think of uh, trauma. You, we talked about trauma early. Your um, the history suggests that the traumas were were deaths of brothers and sisters. Uh, were were deaths of not of of of, of families broken up, but of, of you know death of a brother, basically. Uh, if if you want to boil it down to one line. Yeah, yeah, and and he lost his father in Nauvoo. He lost children. Um, I think I saw the question. Um, so where where can we learn more about this framework of so again, not to. Like, I don't want to pitch my book or anything like that. But the reason I'm talking about it today is because it's something I've worked on a lot. Um, this idea of priesthood as um, cosmological construct of composed of relationships that are created and formalized on Earth is um, a primary thesis of, of my book. So if... Look. Whatever. Ahead, don't, don't buy my book because whatever well, this whatever ahead, <laughs> um but a lot of folks have nibbled around this um idea sam you know sam brown's work we've you know we've known each other we've been writing together for a long time and kind of bounce ideas off each other and we're approaching i think the problem from different perspectives but um complementary it seems like one way that this is reinforced to me has been the sense of what does it mean to be born in the covenant? That basically Abraham's desire is to say, how can I learn to bless people and benefit them? And so when children are born in the covenant, they are, in theory, born to a, a parent who says, "My like God, my, my role is to bring to pass your joy and eternal life and growth. And so that's a covenant that is there as a gift. And, and, and so this ties into the, you know, some of the comments about it, kings and queens are servants. But the, the Abrahamic covenant and desire was not just about kinship, but how can I learn to bless anyone that I might come across? And that there is a reality that endures through that process, not just on a temporary basis. Right. Um, and so be, building off that, and I saw another comment in the thread about, you know, how is reigning helping? But if we go back to section 121, the Sermon on the Mount, this inversion, right? This power inversion, what, how do you wield power um, by not wielding power? Um, the only way you can be, have priesthood power, right? So this is power in the priesthood. The only way you can have power in the priesthood is if you're kind and long-suffering and patient. That's it. That's the only, so that, that's a good bookend because I think we're almost out of time, but that bookends it, right? This, this new cosmology is mediated on the principles of Christ um, as revealed in the Sermon on the Mount and in section 121. So can I say something? 
do we have to end right there? <laughs> I mean, I'm just wondering, like, how can we as a people talk about this more, think about this more and really help bring it to pass? Because, you know, when you look at, I was so surprised the first time I went to Kirtland because it was so different than the modern temples that we have now. And then trying to piece that together, then going to the temple that we have now, I think you can maybe have a lot of the same thing, but you can view it in two totally opposite ways almost. And, you know, there's one view where the temple is actually trying to get us to create a very equal society, get us to uh, create this kind of vision that you've talked about. Um, but to some degree in practice, it's actually made it more unequal and it's kind of divided the righteous from the lesser thans and uh, all these hoops we have to go through in order to be viewed as worthy and all of these things. Whereas it's really supposed to be something that expands and helps us to be more uh, inclusive and more uh, to, to really be working on becoming a people of God. Um, yeah, so we, we no longer are um, creating creative relationships in the temple. Um, so we can, if we look at our wards as Kirtland or Nauvoo, our stakes is Nauvoo, right? They're, um, yeah, we have less radical options, um, but maybe they're as radical because if we, um, I'm a firm believer that if Zion comes, it will come as we wash dishes after a ward party together. Um, that if we are treating the people in our ward as if we are kin, if we are bound together in ways that can't be broken, that um, it's not a matter of worthiness or unworthiness um, or activity or inactivity, but we are all bound together and will not be whole until um, we are complete. Then as we serve, then um, as we wash the dishes, as we are kind, and this is again, like I'm not saying I do this well. Um, I read this and just like everybody else, I am a poor Christian. Um, but as we are kind, as we um, are patient, as we have love unfeigned, um, then these principles of righteousness, the doctrine of the priesthood will distill upon our souls. And um, we talk about it. My, um, my 10-year-old got up in the primary program last week and um, was asked to talk about how the priesthood blesses his life. And because he's my son, he talked about kings and queens and priests and priestesses. Sorry. Can you not record this and put it on, on, on the internet? No, I think um, I just want to, I'm in. Jonathan, that's the sermon we came for. Um, let's, and, and so, amen, and let's, let's close our uh, formal um, program. Um, thank you. Uh, and, and let me ask David to uh, offer a closing prayer. And, uh, and, and then if you're willing, Jonathan, stick around and we'll, we'll talk about it. But absolutely, I want that final sermon on record. Thank you. Our Father in heaven, 
We are so grateful for the whisperings of the spirit and the yearnings of her heart that lead us to care so deeply for each other in our own imperfections and in our gratitude to thee for the blessings that we have enjoyed. We do pray and supplicate thee that in this time of increasing strife and alienation, that we may have faith in the gentle power of love and caring and healing, that we may each feel the binding and security that comes as we participate in building Zion and that we may see it grow and blossom in others. And we offer this with our thanks for those who have prepared their thoughts and comments this day. In the name of thy son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Thank you, everybody. Hey. Thank you. You've been listening to the Dialogue Gospel Sunday Study. Find more of our podcasts at dialoguejournal.com slash podcasts. Dialogue Podcast Network.